Y'all pray with me before we get started. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for uh, your son, Jesus, who we've gathered here to uh, proclaim his excellencies, Lord. I pray this morning that, uh, that the gospel would be made known through everything that we do, through the preaching of your word, through the songs that we sing, through the way we serve one another, and, and everything that we do, would Jesus be made known? Would you make yourself known to us uh, through the good news of Jesus Christ? Lord, I pray that as we get into to this passage this morning, into the scripture, uh, I pray that you would speak to each of us uh, as, you would, uh, as you know each one of us needs you to speak to us. Have each of us here as you would have us here. May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts so we would know how great you truly are uh, and what you're really like and what you really do. And we would worship you for who you really are and who you truly are. We love you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've heard of a, a little sitcom, it's called, it's called Friends. You guys ever heard of that? I bring it up not because it's like a moral show that I recommend everybody, I don't, and it's not. Uh, but at, at times it's humorous, at times it's funny, right? And there's this one episode where these six friends, if you don't know the show, there's these six friends that the whole show kind of centers around, and uh, these six friends are getting together uh, for a holiday. I'm pretty sure it's Thanksgiving. They're getting together for Thanksgiving, and Rachel... One of the six, played by Jennifer Aniston, uh, decides to make an English dessert for the meal. Maybe you're familiar. She has a recipe for an English trifle that she's following. And one of those, it's one of those uh, layered desserts, if you don't know what a trifle is, right? You've got like the big glass bowl, it's got like the, the center leg on it, and then there's just, just different like layers of stuff, like custard and jams and whatnot in the bowl. So she's got, a, she's got a recipe for an English trifle that she wants to make for everybody, and uh, she's bu- busy making each layer, and she's explaining to Ross and Joey, two of her friends, uh, what's going on here. So she's going, you know, I got the lady fingers, and I got, then I got some jam, then I got some custard and some raspberries, some more lady fingers, some beef mixed with onions and peas, and, uh, and then some more custard and so on, Right? Now, obviously, Ross and Joey are like, um, I'm sorry, beef, onions, peas? What, what was that part about, right? And, and Rachel assures them that this is how an English trifle is made. I mean, they don't do it like we do in America. They put beef in with their jams and, and their, their creams and custards and whatnot. So obviously, they're like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. So when she leaves, uh, she leaves the room, and Joey and Ross kind of go over to the recipe book, and they take a look and come to find out she's got two pages stuck together. So on the first page, she's making an English trifle, whatever, you know, the, the custard and the lady fingers and whatnot. But when she turned the page, she was actually a couple pages further, and she's making a shepherd's pie, right? So it's half trifle, half shepherd's pie. Delicious. I tell that story because this morning I want us to consider whether we might be in a similar situation. Only instead of concerning a, de- a dessert, we might, be, uh, we might need to consider who this God is that we worship. Just like Rachel's trifle is actually part trifle, but part something else, shepherd's pie, I wonder if it's possible that the God we worship is part, like partly really God, like partly the real God, but also part something of our own making. Right? Is the God who has your heart and the God who has my heart truly the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, or is He partly maybe a God of our own making, a God of your own making. Like Rachel's half trifle, half 
shepherd's pie, that's not really trifle. That's just, I don't know what that is. It's a mess. But if we were worshiping a half real God and a half something else that we made up, who are we worshiping then? Who is the God that you say you serve? What's he really like? That's the questions I want us to think about this morning. Who's the God that we say we serve? What's he really like? And what does serving our God look like? And to what lengths is he allowed to lead us? We're going to start with the book of Jonah this morning. We're going to spend about a month in Jonah. And so it's in the Old Testament. It's in the Minor Prophets. You're just going to have to kind of sift through all those little tiny books. It's right after Obadiah. uh, And so maybe you can find it. But Jonah, you may be familiar with. Uh, We're going to start in that this morning, and I'm going to read for us this first chapter, 17 verses, Jonah 1 through 17. It says this, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came in and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. (coughs) Excuse me. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now here's the main thing that I want us to understand this morning. God is ever-present, and God is in control, and He can be trusted to always make Himself known. Right? God is ever-present, God is in control, and He can be trusted to always make Himself known. 
<coughs> Excuse me. See, I think that we all have trust issues that keep us from surrendering, that keep us from submitting every area of our lives to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ, which we talk about a lot around here. I think we have trust issues that keep us from, from submitting in that way, and I think those issues, they stem from us having a warped concept of who God really is and what he really does. But as you might find from Jonah's experience, life is better for us when we live surrendered, when we live submitted instead of living rebelliously. So we need to deal with these trust issues that we have. Now, we may mistrust God for one reason or for another. Like perhaps something painful has happened in your life. Most of us have had something painful in our lives. It can be difficult to completely trust in a God who would allow such a painful experience, right? Maybe you've had a difficult relationship with your parents. That's the case for a lot of folks too. So the idea of trusting God as a father is hard to even understand like how that would work, much less understand, uh, actually putting it into practice and trusting it. Another reason you may mistrust God is it could be that you are a witness to the hurting of others, right? You could see the brokenness that's all around you in the world. You could notice all the division and all the hate and all the pain that's all around you. And it seems like it's impossible to repair. It seems a little far-fetched to believe that God is really going to repair it all. Or maybe you just have seen how awful some people are, how big of a jerk some people can be, how evil some folks are. And for you, (coughs) excuse me, a God that would forgive people like that doesn't seem very just or fair in the way you can process it and figure it. Whatever the case, We find ourselves in a place of mistrust and suspicion towards God. And as Tim Keller writes, he says, when this happens, this mistrust and suspicion, when this happens, we have to decide, does God know what's best or do we? And the default mode of the unaided human heart is always to decide that we do, that we know what's best. Adam and Eve, he says, like Jonah many years later, decided that if they couldn't think of a good reason for a command of God, then there couldn't be one. Awesome, thank you. Right, Adam and Eve, like Jonah many years later, decided that if they couldn't think of a good reason for a command of God, then there couldn't actually be one. And this is how we still operate today, isn't it? This is how we all operate. Our default isn't to look beyond ourselves, but to decide everything based on our own reasoning and based on our own understanding. But I think there are some lessons in the book of Jonah that will reveal the character of God as compared to Jonah's and as even compared to ours. And I think that as we see his true character, the true character of God, it may help us to break out of this way of living where we live by our own understanding and our own reasoning and not the understanding and the reasoning of God. So let's take a look at this first chapter of Jonah that we just read. It starts out like if you want to know who Jonah is, we're told right away in the first verse that he's the son of Amittai. This tells us that it, this means he's the same prophet, the same Jonah, who's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And there we would see that, that God actually has spoke through Jonah. He spoke through Jonah uh, to prophesy to King Jeroboam, who was the king over the northern kingdom, and he prophesied saying that... Uh, that the borders of the northern kingdom would expand. The borders of where Jonah is from would expand. And then we'd also see that those prophecies were correct. 
that under Jeroboam, those boundaries did expand. And some will argue at this point, some scholars and whatnot, will argue that, that this shows that Jonah was a nationalistic prophet. And I think, there's plenty of, I think there's probably plenty of evidence in the story of Jonah that this is true about him, that he's, he's a bit nationalistic and maybe even a bit prejudiced. But in the case of that particular prophecy in 2 Kings, uh, Jonah was speaking as God told him to speak. Right? He was the mouthpiece of God to Israel. That's who Jonah is. He's been a mouthpiece of God to Israel. He was obedient in that brief moment in 2 Kings as a prophet. And God did what he said he was going to do. But what actually begins revealing Jonah's nationalistic and even prejudiced tendencies is not how he responds to God's call to speak to his own people back in 2 Kings, but it's in how he responds to God's call to speak to those who are not his own people, the Ninevites, the Assyrians. As we see in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 of Jonah, uh, God says this. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah runs in the exact opposite direction of where God calls him. I actually mentioned uh, the Assyrians briefly last week. But what we need to know about the Assyrians is that they were a fierce and violent kingdom. They were known for their brutality and their violence as they would take over their enemies. And they were a serious threat to Israel. As a matter of fact, this people, the Assyrians, this is who eventually will take the first Israelites into exile. So while throughout this book we may find that Jonah is super whiny, I find Jonah to be super whiny, right? He's super whiny. We're going to find him to be outrageously rebellious. We're going to find him to be a bit nationalistic and prejudiced. But it is with this in mind. The Assyrians were his country's worst enemies and their greatest threat. So when God tells him to go and to preach to them, it kind of makes sense it doesn't make sense like in, the, in the, the view of God, of course, but it makes sense to us because we would probably naturally react in the same way, right? Jonah wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want to go to his enemies, so he runs away. See, Jonah was all good with, with a God who would speak and, and bless his own people and his own nation. But he wanted nothing to do with a God who would speak to their worst enemies. The first part of God's recipe sounded pretty good. The part where he blesses him and his own people in his home uh, area. But this new ingredient doesn't make sense to Jonah. Right away we are seeing that whoever God really is, whatever he really does, whatever he's really like, he isn't the God that Jonah had bargained for, right? Now, scholars are a little kind of all over the place about when this book was actually written and who actually wrote it, so I don't know who actually put pen to paper and when. But I do totally believe that Jonah is the original storyteller uh, for numerous reasons, but one of which is that the details had to have come from him. Uh, I mean, at some point, he's in a fish. Only Jonah knows what happened in that fish, right? But also, there's another part, another reason, and it's, it's the language that it's used. It's like It's a little comical, right? It's as if the story is told in a way that only a person who knows how ridiculous they had been can tell the story. Like, I can identify with that because I've had my own stories of failure that are almost comical at this point, and you probably do too, and it seems like it's told in that manner. Like, for instance, 
the writer keeps saying that Jonah was seeking to flee the presence of the Lord. Right? Verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I just want us to take that in. He bought a ticket to go away from where the Lord was present. To me, that's a little comical. Like Jonah knows good and well that there's no place to hide from God, right? He knows good and well that he can't find it. He can't run away from the presence of the Lord. That he knows that it's not that God just doesn't live in Tarshish. Like that's not how it works, right? But he pays for a ticket and does his best to try to duck from God's presence. And the impossibility of getting away from the presence of God, like the impossibility of getting beyond his reach, is demonstrated in the fact that God chases him with a storm. God sends a storm. Like note to self, everybody, if you're going to run from God, maybe don't get in a boat. Right? Because when he catches up to you in a boat, you've got no other option. But God sends a storm, and it starts rocking this boat pretty hard to the point that the mariners are getting really scared. And they start praying to their gods. This is an indication they are not Israelites. They're praying to other gods, the gods of their peoples, right? And then they start throwing the cargo overboard to make a boat lighter. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. It says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came in and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. There's a couple things I want us to note here. The call of the captain echoes that of God in verse 2, right? The the call of God in verse 2, he says, Arise and go. And he tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach. And we'll see later in the story, in a couple chapters, we're going to see later in the story that the real reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he doesn't want to see God show mercy to his enemies. That's the real reason that he doesn't go. So Jonah flees. Now, in this storm, the captain barges in and says, Arise, echoing what God said in verse 2. He says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. God had called Jonah to go to a foreign people who were not his own, who didn't know God, and be a mouthpiece for God. But Jonah, in his heart, didn't want those people spared. He didn't want God to have mercy on those people. And now, in this moment, he is, he's here with God's words being spoken to him through the mouth of a foreigner. Right? Speaking to his very heart issue about sparing them. That God might spare them so they would not perish. The very thing he didn't want to see happen to foreigners, God puts on the lips of foreigners and says it back to him. But still, Jonah doesn't turn to God. There's not an indication that he prays at all, as the captain asks him to do. Instead, he gets up, he casts lots with the others, and and Tim Keller also writes this. He says, so Jonah fled, only to find himself talking about God to the exact sort of people he was fleeing. So what we find next is that these, these folks who Jonah eventually comes clean with and tells him that he's running from his God, they act much more uh, civilized, much more, with, much more graced, with much more grace than Jonah does. And they try their very best 
to row the boat ashore to save Jonah. They want to do anything besides throw Jonah overboard. But alas, they reach the end of their rope and they throw Jonah over, but not before praying to Jonah's God, which was something that Jonah had yet to do. Right? I mean, Jonah... Jonah knows that God hasn't asked for human sacrifice here. Jonah, he knows this. God hasn't asked for human sacrifice. Like, who knows what could have happened if he would have even just heeded God's word that was coming through the foreign captain's mouth? What if Jonah had just prayed and repented and asked the man to take him back to land? Perhaps God would have calmed the seas. Perhaps God would have relented. This offering of himself isn't as much like a, a giving of himself for others. It's not, to, I don't think, as much of a substitutionary sacrifice as it is a death wish. Like Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh and see his enemies spared. And he's going to say that later in the book. He's going to say it later. That sentiment we'll hear later from Jonah. He would rather die than go to Nineveh and see his enemies spared. Let's look at verses 13 through 16. It says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. This scene, it parallels what will eventually happen in chapter 3 when Jonah finally goes to Nineveh to preach. Like Jonah does very, very little in the way of proclaiming who God is to either group of people. Later on in Nineveh, he'll preach a five-word sermon. That's all he does. He does the bare minimum. And here in verse 9, all Jonah says is, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And he tells them that that's who he's running from. That is, of course, he's running from the God who made everything on which he could run or flee, right? Which is ridiculous. So after trying to spare Jonah and after praying that God would have mercy on them, they eventually throw Jonah into the ocean and the sea ceased from its raging and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Like in spite of Jonah's lack of effort, in in spite of his very little effort to proclaim who God is to them, God has made himself known to a people who did not know him through Jonah. And he has demonstrated his very character to these foreigners, right? As Jonah says bitterly later in in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, God has demonstrated that he is a gracious God and merciful, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God has demonstrated that he relents from disaster. He's not only this way with one person, he's not only this way to one people, but he's even with those who oppose him and who do not know him. This is the nature of the real God. And so far in the story, what's becoming quite clear in the overall narrative about God is that He is in complete control. He's in complete control. God is sovereign. He created the land and the sea, and He holds it all in His hands still. There's nowhere we could run from His presence, and God will accomplish His purposes 
through us no matter what. God is ever-present, and God is in control. He can be trusted to always make himself known. That's what he does. Now, I think that the story of Jonah, as we'll continue to see over the next few weeks, is largely meant to challenge our ideas about what God is like and what God does and who he uses, which then challenges our thoughts on who's in and who's out with God, right? And the story forces us to wrestle with the tensions that we may have with who God really is versus who we kind of want God to be and what he really does versus what we want God to be to do. The very last verse in this chapter, verse 17, it introduces the part that everybody is familiar with when they think of the story of Jonah, if they know the story of Jonah, right? Chapter 1, verse 17 says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the part we all know. Jonah was in the belly of a fish. We know that part. But like I said, God didn't ask for a human sacrifice, right? God didn't ask for a human sacrifice. When Jonah offered himself up, he had a death wish. Jonah was still running even into death. He would rather die than go to Nineveh, and he had yet to call out to God in prayer. And when they throw him overboard, what's there to catch him? He had plans to die, but Jonah's life wasn't in his own hands alone. God had other ideas for how things would go down, and he appointed a fish to save Jonah's life by swallowing him. God is ever-present, and God is in control, and we can trust him to make himself known always. Here's what I hope we do with this story just this morning as we get started in this book, is that we would just sit back and behold the character of God on display. Just sit back and behold the character of God on display. Like, let's not get carried away with the fish part right now, okay? It's a very little part. Let's not get carried away with the fish part. Let's consider what it means to be in God's hands. Like, I want you to be able to find that you can trust Him, that you can put your faith in God because you can't submit and you can't surrender to Him if you don't trust Him enough to let His understanding and His reasoning Stretch your own. And when you don't surrender and you don't submit, it'll only serve to cause pain for you and probably others around you. And I get how that statement, that he would cause pain, that it would cause pain for you and others around you, I get how that statement in itself could even cause you to be suspicious of God and maybe not trust him. Like if he says to do something and I don't do it, he's going to hurt people? That doesn't sound very good. But I want us to consider how the character of God is displayed in the book of Jonah and what is really going on. Like God intended Jonah, God intended Jonah to tell the Ninevites about his justice, to go tell the Ninevites about his grace, about his mercy, his love, and his patience. But Jonah meant to see them suffer, right? So God brings a storm which does cause suffering and fear for Jonah and those that were on board with him, but in so doing, the others who are with him find that God is merciful and they find that he is gracious and they find that he is loving and that he is patient and that he relents from disaster. And it isn't just the Ninevites and the mariners aboard the boat uh, who who are with Jonah, 
It's not just them that God's pursuing with the reality of who he really is and what his character is really like. He's pursuing Jonah as well, right? He's coming after him. And it's not just punishment. It's not just pain because you didn't do what I told you to. He's pursuing him and he's coming after him. There's a fish waiting to catch the man with a death wish. God intends to bring Jonah to a place of trust and a place of submission and a place of repentance. God is pursuing Jonah because he's what's best for Jonah. Not submitting to God is a sin and it's bound to cause pain because we're outside of our created purposes when we don't follow the lead of our God. But it's not because God is untrustworthy or because he's bad or mean, right? As a matter of fact, we have this promise in Romans 8.28 that tells us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Nevertheless, God will do what he intends to do. He will make himself known in the world. He will do it through each one of us, whether we cooperate or not, right? It's through Pharaoh, the man who oppressed the Israelites or the Hebrews in Egypt, right? It's through him that God, it's to him that God says this in Exodus 9.16, for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, so whether we are for him or whether we are against him, God will accomplish his purposes through us. And his purpose is to make his name known in all the earth, to saturate the world with his glory. God is ever-present and God is in control and he can be trusted to always make himself truly known. That's what he does. Did you know that Jesus refers to this last verse in Jonah chapter 1? In Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 40, it says this. It says that the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what was Jesus getting at? Well, essentially what he was getting at was that these people just wanted the sign that assured them that he was the Messiah that they were seeking, the Messiah that they wanted, the God that they wanted, right? A God who would bless the nation of Israel in order to crush the Gentile nations, a God who would give them power over the other nations. But Jesus wouldn't give them what they were looking for because kind of like Rachel with the trifle, they seem to have gotten some pages stuck together. He isn't part real God and part something else. He isn't a God of anybody else's making. He isn't a pawn for their own nationalistic agendas. And he, he's, he's not any of those things. He's the real God the creator of the land and the seas and everything in it. And just as the character of God was on display for the mariners in this first chapter of Jonah and is on display for the Ninevites through Jonah and his failures, the character of God is proven through Jesus' death and resurrection and ultimate victory. That's what Jesus is getting at. Where Jonah fell short, God still came through. And when Jonah couldn't, what Jonah couldn't be, Jesus truly is. 
Jesus proved once and for all that He is the God of far-reaching compassion. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of justice. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience. He's a God of deliverance. And He's in complete control. Jesus proved once and for all that God is everything God shows Himself to be in the book of Jonah. A God who would step into this world and a God who would die and a God that would spend three days in the belly of the earth in our place, so that we could be delivered. I think that's a God that can be trusted. So this morning, as we look at the story of Jonah, my hope is that we look ultimately to Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. 1 Corinthians 1.15. Not 1 Corinthians. Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's made it possible for us to truly behold the character of God on display. For us to look to Jesus and see what God is really like. And so that's the invitation this morning is that you look to Jesus and that you find you can trust God for who He really is and what He really does, not just what maybe we've created in our own mind and what we've used our reason and our understanding to, 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 to put together. The invitation is to put your faith in Jesus this morning and ask the Spirit to lead you to increasingly submit all areas of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. As we look to Jonah, may we look to Jesus and see that he is God on full display for us so that we know we can trust him and we can submit all of life to him. Would you, uh, we're going to move into a, a time of response as we do each week. And uh, just a few things are going to happen. The band will come up and lead us in a, in, a, in a time of worship. And it's a time where we can reflect and respond and worship together through singing. Uh, also, you can give your tithes and offerings in the back. Uh, if you don't have something to put in the basket, that's fine. There's other ways to give. And uh, instructions are back there. Uh, and then also each week we, we take communion together. So you'll come down these side aisles. And you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the wine or the juice. Uh, reminding us of the body and the blood of Jesus that was given and shed for us uh, so that we could be delivered. And when we do this, we remember together, as we see one another do it and as we take and eat, we remember that Jesus is who He says He is, that once and for all He's proven who God really is and that He's for us, not against us, and that He is faithful and just and that He, is, will, he will make his name, his name known in all the earth and that He will reconcile all things to Himself. His promises are good. Right? So we remember who He is, and then we proclaim it to one another so that we would each remember. And so if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take with us and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in this act of communion. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not come, not because we want to single you out, but because we want you to hear what we're saying through this act. This is an invitation for you to come and to take God, to take Christ as well, and to follow Him. You can know who He is you can know that He's really for you. He's not against you. He came and He gave Himself, His body and His blood for you while you were still against Him. And He's for you. And your purpose is to make Him known in all the earth. And you're invited into that. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I just pray this morning that, um, that You make Yourself known to us. that your Holy Spirit would uh, open the eyes of our hearts so we would know uh, the heights and the depths and the width and the breadth of your love for us. 
We would know how great lengths you, what great lengths you've gone to to prove to us who you are and what you're about, to prove to us who we are. We were made in your image for the purpose of making you known, for the purpose of glorifying you in all the earth. And that if we want to be satisfied, if we want to find joy, that's where we will find it. Lord, let us know your great love for us and that you sent your Son to die for us, to make a way for us to be restored to a purpose we could never fulfill once we had turned away from you. Thank you for our Deliverer. God, restore our minds to, to, uh, to, to behold you as you really are. May we behold you as you really are for what, what you are really like and what you really do. And would that expose the idols of our hearts? And would you show us how Jesus is better? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.